So open our Bibles to John chapter 13 as we continue to teach uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Um, our main chapter tonight is going to be uh, John chapter 14. This is one of those rare occasions where when they put in the dividers between chapter 12, 13, and 14, <clears throat> um, this is one place where I believe chapter 14 should begin with the last three verses of chapter 13, and I'm going to begin the study by reading verse 36 of chapter 13, as I think it's a continuing thought that he's working his way into the first three verses, and he's relating it not only just to Peter, um, but of the glorious hope of the rapture of the church and how we always find associated with it when you talk about the rapture. Uh, Therefore, comfort one another with these words because you know these things, happy are you, so on and so forth. So chapter 13, verse 36, this is um, picking up on the Lord telling Peter he was going to deny him. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him and he says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus said, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And then let not your heart be troubled is towards Peter, but really now he's going to um, get into changing the subject to get them to them to know that the trials and the tribulations, here Peter falls and fails in his strong point, which was courage, denied the Lord, little bitty girl, said you're one of his followers, and he, got, he couldn't even handle the pressure from, from her, and he denied. So as we look at the first three verses of chapter 14, just coming back from the Dallas uh, pre-trib conference, um, uh, this is one they definitely point out as rapture verses. And I'm going to take a little bit of time tonight and, and actually go through um, the rapture of the church, um, a picture of a Jewish wedding, and how, again, when you connect the dots, it's a perfect fit. So let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, and that's um, Acts chapter one, he's on the Mount of Olives, and um, the disciples are there, they see Jesus bodily being taken into heaven. Two angels appear and say, you men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? And then they said, this same Jesus is going to return in like manner. And we have uh, one of the big misunderstandings about in Judaism is they didn't and they could not comprehend the two comings of the same Messiah. How could he be a suffering servant in Isaiah 53? And um, Psalm 22 said, um, they pierced my hands and my feet. He's despised, he's rejected. And yet the whole hope of the uh, Jewish people was that the Messiah is going to come and establish his kingdom that he promised to King David, an everlasting kingdom. And they could not reconcile this in their mind. They didn't have the hindsight that you and I are privy to. So when he talks about going and preparing a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you will be also. Now, there's a debate. I'm going to put something up on the screen right now and we'll go through it. 
of the rapture versus the second coming. I, I agree with almost all of it. I'll show you the one part that I don't agree with. But many teach and believe that the rapture is not revealed until you get to First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. So let's start there, because I'm going to have you use some page turning tonight. First Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is about the resurrection, about the reality of um, um, the order of events, Jesus being the first one from the dead with the resurrected body. Um, we have here the gospel clearly presented. If you want to share the gospel with somebody, you just have one verse to give them. Um, you can give them 1 Corinthians 15. Verse three, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for you according to the scriptures. He died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he's seen by over 500, he was seen by Peter. Paul says in due time I got to see him. So all of chapter 15 is about the resurrection. It talks about the kinds of bodies that we're going to have after we're resurrected. If you're taking notes, that's verses 35 and um, uh, down to verse 46. There's a physical body that's designed to be able to withstand so much uh, uh, pressure upon our bodies. And um, then we have a, a terrestrial body that's designed for all eternity. And he's making the point, without exception, everybody is going to go through this experience of dying. But then he says, except one generation. So if you're in chapter 15, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. The word there is metamorphosis. It's what a butterfly does. It goes through this change from being a caterpillar and then after billions and billions and billions of years, it comes out as a butterfly. (laughs) No, it takes about two weeks. It's called metamorphosis. We're gonna be translated in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. It's gonna be that quick. So basically what Paul is saying here is he's talking about death, resurrection. It's gonna happen to everybody. And the reason I bring you here is when he uses the terminology, I tell you a mystery. In other words, a lot of Bible teachers will say this is the first time that Paul or the New Testament says anything about the rapture of the church. I don't agree with that. Neither does everybody at the pre-trib conference in in Dallas. Um, He is talking to the church of Corinth. And... John chapter 14, he's talking to his disciples. So the mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trump will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this this, uh, corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And I like Paul's attitude. Uh, Most people are afraid to die when it gets right down to it. Not Paul. And here's here's the deal, gang. The more you know about what God's word says about the resurrection death, God's purpose, God's plan. It takes you from one of fear where the other extreme is Paul saying, let's get this thing going. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? He wants this new body. And then he says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we have a therefore. Because we have this blessed hope. My friends, when everything is said and done and um, everything is stripped away, 
according to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, you have three things that remain that nobody can take away from you. You have faith, good place for an amen. You had hope, another good place for an amen. And you have love, and nobody can take that away from you. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Well, what hope? A hope that I'm never gonna die. You are never going to die. And Paul's attitude here is, he, he says, because this is the case, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in, is not in vain in the Lord. The old saying, only one life will soon be passed, the only what's done for Christ will last. But know this, everything else gets left behind. It's like the rich man with the bigger barns. Oh, he was, he was so successful, he had to build bigger barns. And so he did. And he said, let's might as well eat, drink, and be merry. And the Lord said, you fool. You're just a fool. Because you don't know that your soul is required of you this night. You never know what a day is going to bring. I don't know how personal I should get with this. It's not my notes, but this is just our day today. Um, we get a phone call from Joshua and some blood work comes back on Bethany, and they said, we have some serious problems here, and we need to get her here right now because of the blood work that was coming back with her kidneys. I hope I'm not, um, everything's fine. Let me just tell you that part right now. But all morning, we're, we're, the the office is shook up, and um, um, Josh was uh, at the hospital, and... um, um, I said, you call me as soon as you, fi- you find out anything. They're talking very, very serious damage, possibly to her kidneys. And only to find out after, he said he'd call me at 1, and he never did. <laughs> so at 2.30, I texted him. I said, can you give me an update on Bethany? And he, they're supposed to go on vacation on, on Saturday. And they would have had to cancel all this and had reservations and... and um, they went, they got in, and, and the doctor said, you know, looking at this, you're fine. You need to change this maybe a little bit in your eating habits here and why this report came back the way it is. Um, uh, that you, you shouldn't have had to be concerned this day for what was going on. What's your point, Dwight? The kid's 34 years old, and you just never know what any day is, is going to be. It could have been serious. It could have been life-threatening. It's not. Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> and I was talking to Joshua before the study. And I said, all right, give me the full report. And everything's back on track. And they're not going to be ready packing and getting ready, ready to take their trip to, to um, Arizona for a week. And, but, but you never know. Therefore... Be steadfast, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But everything else is, because you can't take anything with you. So really, um, Sunday where we're going is we're going to be talking about um, our places. We, you can go back now to First Corinthians 14, and I'll go through, the, through this in a second. As we read the first verse here, the, the argument has always been the very first place that the rapture is mentioned in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 15. It's a mystery, but now Paul's going to reveal it. That's not the case. He's talking to the church at Corinth. Here he's talking to his disciples. And he's telling them that he goes to prepare a place for them. Now, there are those that we call dominionists or amillennial uh, that actually believe that we're living in the kingdom right now. It's called Kingdom Now Theology. And it's a doctrine that's out there. Many, many people hold to it. And um, all I have to say about that is if, if, if we're in the kingdom right now, I am really, really, really disappointed. <laughs> if this is the kingdom. And uh, Satan's supposed to be chained during a thousand year period of time. And as Pastor Chuck always used to say, if Satan's chained, then he's got a pretty long chain that's wrapped around him. Because we're told later on in the New Testament, he goes around like a roaring roaring lion, 
seeking who he may devour. And that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in high places. Spiritual warfare. And um, so as we look at this, let's, let me just go through this and point out the difference on screen. By the way, we made copies if you want to pick one up afterwards on a table um, and just take it home. Um, we are not in the kingdom. That should be obvious to all. So the very first verse they got for the rapture up here is John 14, verses 1 to 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 to 17. That's um, um, uh, rapture verses. Now at the second coming, there's no translation. Um, then we have Colossians, Zechariah, Jude, and Revelation 19. At the rapture, we are translated in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and we go to heaven. At the second coming, we return with him. It says the Lord returns with 10,000s of his saints, not angels, his saints. So then we find once the church is taken out, I'm, I'm always wondering what, what's gonna cause, what shoe's gonna drop that takes America out of the picture because we're not in Bible prophecy? What's the event that's going to happen? Is it the supervolcano at Yellowstone? Is it an EMP attack? Is it a cyber attack at our country that makes us vulnerable? And, when, and we don't know. But what Dave Hunt always said, to me it's obvious. What happens when millions of people disappear? That will send the world into turmoil. And it would explain uh, why people, uh, after we're, we're translated to heaven, that now God will bring judgment upon those who would not receive him. So in, as we read this, the earth is not judged at um, the rapture. Uh, earth, but when at the second coming, when the Lord comes a second time, the earth is judged and righteousness is established. Um, we have the, the seven-year tribulation period um, that we'll be talking about just in a moment. The next thing is uh, the rapture is what we call imminent. In other words, it could happen at any time, preferably before the Bible study is over tonight. So you want to give me an amen on that one? And on the other hand, at the second coming, following definite predicted signs. I'd go farther than that. I can tell you to the day. If you're in the tribulation period and you see the abomination of desolation, Daniel 12, the last three verses, says it'll be 1,290 days and you have the second coming. Daniel tells us to the day the first coming. He tells you to the day the second coming. And um, when it talks about uh, predicted signs, you'll notice here it says Daniel 9, verse 24 through 27, and Matthew 24, and so on. It's not in the Old Testament. This is what I disagree with. After many years of um, uh, studying this, actually, um, Chuck Missler was the one that first pointed this out, and he was really strong about this being a a rapture verse. And um, uh, I'll take you back to that in just a minute. Um, The second coming is predicted often in the Old Testament. Uh, Before the day of wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, where it says the Lord has not appointed us to wrath. Well, that's exactly what the tribulation is. Seven is gonna become an important number in our Bible studies tonight as we talk about the rapture. You have to have seven years. And um, I'll show you through an illustration of a Jewish wedding just how much a Jewish wedding and the rapture of the church are so identical. So, and therefore, whenever it talks about the rapture, at the end of uh, this chapter five, it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. And there's no way at all I find any comfort if I think I'm having any part of the great tribulation period. Then it says, um, the second coming 
concluding the day of wrath. Or what's that? What happens at the very end of uh, chapter 19? We have the Lord not coming on a lowly donkey this time as a servant. No, he's coming on a white stallion with a robe that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And all the nations that have gathered together against him. If you're taking notes, this is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot a vain thing? He who is in heaven will laugh at them in derision. People fighting against God? (laughs) Get real. People fighting against God. And so we find that um, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, we have the Lord returning. This, we could get very sidetracked here. You go to <coughs> excuse me, Isaiah 16 tells us exactly where he's going to go first. He's going to go to Petra, Basra. And um, then the next one down, he comes in the air for his own to claim his bride. Uh, but at the second coming, he comes to the earth with his own, his bride. Uh, at the rapture, only his own see him. I don't know how quick that's going to be, a twinkling of an eye, but all of a sudden we will be. But at the second coming, in Matthew 24, it says, every eye will see him when he comes. At the rapture, the tribulation begins, Second Thessalonians 2, and at the second coming, the millennium kingdom begins, And then we have the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Let me point out that one that I don't totally agree with here. It's not in the Old Testament. I think it's in the Old Testament, not only in Scripture, but also in picture. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26. We'll pick it up in verse 19. 26, Isaiah 26, 19, <clears throat> your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell on the earth, for your dew is like the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And then he says, come, my people, enter your chambers. Now, as I'm saying this, remember The Lord says, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. I want you to start connecting some dots here. And shut your doors behind you. Why? It says, hide yourself as it was for a little moment, a small time frame, seven-year time frame, until the indignation is over. Indignation is clearly one of the terms used for the tribulation period. It's called the day of wrath of the Lamb. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called Daniel's 70th week. But it's also called the great indignation. And most of it, us know it as the tribulation period. A seven-year period of time, yet unfulfilled from Daniel chapter 9, And um, 483 of those years have been fulfilled, but God owes Israel seven years. And what's going to happen during this period of time, it'll be a time of breaking, um, humbling, and um, bringing um, the nation of Israel to a place where they actually cry out to the Lord. And remember what Jesus said, you're not going to see me again until... Until when? Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here they are, fearful because Satan's been cast out of heaven and he's making his way to Petra. You can bet they're calling out on the Lord. And um, the Lord hears them and that's when he comes. And by the time uh, he reaches Jerusalem, Remember Acts 1 verse 9, the same Jesus that you saw leave, he's going to come again. Um, That's the picture of the second coming after he has taken care of, 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 of those in Moab. And if you're taking notes again, this is Isaiah chapter 16, the first six verses. All right.
until the indignation has passed. In other words, you're, you're with me for a moment's time, seven years. Why? Before, behold, the Lord comes out of his place. Well, where's his place? In heaven. What for? To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Well, when he came the first time, he didn't come to punish. Matter of fact, he says, I didn't even come to judge. But he will the second time. So what do we have a picture of here? Oh, come, my people, I want you to go to a place that I've prepared for you. You're going to be there for a short period of time. How long? Until the indignation is over. What's going to happen in the meantime? I'm going to come uh, to my to the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, the earth will also disclose her blood and no more cover her slain. I believe this is scriptures that pertain uh, to the rapture of the church, the Lord's coming and clearly judging the earth. And um, I also believe that we have uh, Old Testament pictures of the rapture. Again, this is not without controversy, and I'll explain the controversy as I get into it here. Um, Noah was taken out before judgment. Noah and eight people altogether. Lot was taken out before judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, turn with me. We're going to go to two scriptures in the New Testament. And let's go to the first one, um, Matthew twenty four thirty six. So let's go there. Then also go to Second Peter two. First one, Matthew twenty four, verse thirty six. This verse that I'm going to read is going to become an important verse when I go take you through. Um, the arrangements of a Jewish wedding. So the wording here is important. The verses before it is the parable of the fig tree. And it talks about there the regathering of the nation of Israel. And he says when the generation that sees that is going to see the fulfillment of all things. Well, that would also include if it's the fulfillment of all things, that would also mean the rapture. Now, I believe verse 36, but of that day and hour no one knows, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Please remember those words. Uh, But as it was in the days, so they were also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Now, here at this point, there's a debate. And the debate is that this is not a picture of uh, the rapture and um, uh, the ones being taken out are the ones being taken out for judgment and Noah is the one that stays. I don't hold to that and I'll show you why when we get to Second Peter chapter 2. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be in the field one will, be t- one will be taken and another left. There's no clearer picture of the rapture than that. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other one left. Watch therefore. Why is Bible prophecy so important? And we're always bringing up current events and news bites because we want to keep you guys on the cutting edge of knowing what to watch for. Watch therefore for you do not know what hour your Lord has come. Well, I just told you earlier, I can tell you to the day Jesus came the first time. Daniel 9, Nehemiah 2. Tell you to the day he's coming again the second time. Daniel chapter 12, the last three verses. But nobody knows the time of the rapture. You just gotta be ready. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would have come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. So it's, it's imminent. It's not a time where you say, well, when you see this happen, you can know that it's just 
a little bit of time and the Lord's gonna come. It's actually gonna be a time when that only the Father in heaven knows about. Now, um, the debate here is those that are taking out are those that are taken out in judgment, but that's not what Second Peter 2 says. Peter talks about this. Go to Second Peter 2, and it completely says exactly the opposite with this other argument. Second Peter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, an ape people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world on the ungodly, who's taken out here and who's judged? Noah's taken out. He's taken out and, ju- and the world is judged. And the same with Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Let's read it a little bit farther. And he turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards lived ungodly. And he delivered righteous Lot. Again, who's delivered and who's brought into judgment? Well, Noah's delivered. Lot's delivered. Who's judged? those that are left behind. So when I read Matthew 24, and they try to tell me that those that are being taken out are the ungodly, it doesn't line up. It's just the opposite of what 2 Peter says. It's just the other way around. Uh, It talks that he was grieved. Living in this world right now pretty much describes, it says, delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked for his righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing the lawless deeds. Isn't that the way it's getting? Don't you wake up every day and you go, oh man, can it get any worse? And so our, our, our hearts are vexed and we're grieved because we see the direction that, that the world is going in. But the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of his judgment. God's got a plan. There has to be a rapture. You can't have the righteous. This was Abraham's argument that he had with the Lord on his his way when he met him and they were going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and he knew Lot was there. And so he challenges the Lord and he says, Lord, are you going to judge the righteous with the unrighteous? What if there was 50 people living in Sodom that were righteous? Would you destroy it? Nope. Not for 50, I wouldn't. Well, what about 40? If there were 40 righteous, would you destroy it then? Nope, not for the 40. Wouldn't do it then either. Uh, how about 30? You know Jewish businessmen, how they work. <laughs> 20. And then he says, Lord, please be patient with me. I will say it one more time. Let's just say there's 10. Would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there are 10 righteous there? What's his point? God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Now, we are all here under God's grace, which makes us righteous. Good place for an amen. But if you're outside of the grace of God, and you're planning on making it to heaven on your own works or whatever, um, the standard is perfection. What makes us righteous? What makes us qualify to be taken out before God judges the world? The righteousness of Christ that, that we have. And that's why we sing songs like we just sang. I want to take some time, Lord. I just want to take some time just to thank you for saving my soul. The best we can offer. What can we do, Lord? What can we do for you? Well, you can offer the sacrifice of praise. You can be a a Christian that is not ashamed to say, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. And I'm not ashamed to say so. And I know by saying that, he's listening right now. And he said, because I just said what I just said, he's gonna confess me before my Father and all the angels in heaven someday. 
I go, wow. It's in the Bible. Nobody can change it. That's actually going to happen. So we have um, this debate that happens, that comes out of Matthew chapter 24. But to me, the, um, one of the um, beautiful examples of um, a pre-trib rapture and the necessity for it being a seven-year period of time is um, these first four verses, behold, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, um, you may be also. I want to give credit where credit is due. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from a Messianic Jew who's with the Lord. His name is Zola Lovett. And he wrote a little booklet that I'm not going to read it. I've only got a couple paragraphs here. But I want you to see the similarities of a Jewish wedding during Jesus' time and John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Where um, when a man would marry, um, he would approach a woman with a marriage contract. It is a true legal agreement. Uh, It's called a betrothal period of time. The example, of course, was Mary and Joseph. Mary was betrothed to Joseph, and it was during this period of time that they had this legal agreement that Mary becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And uh, Mary had to live with that um, because nobody believed it uh, all of her life. Um, The contract, the bridegroom he would have to pay a sizable price for her. She didn't come cheap. And so a price was paid. And if the parties came together and agreed, they would seal the deal by drinking a glass of wine together. And from that point on, it was a legal binding contract. When the matter was settled, the groom would depart, and he would make a little speech to the bride saying, I go to prepare a place for you. Is it starting to come together with John 14? And he would return to his father's house. But at his father's house, he would build her a bridal chamber, a little mansion, if you would, in which they would have their future honeymoon. We should appreciate that this was a complex undertaking for the bridegroom. He would actually build a separate building on his father's property or decorate a room in his father's house. The bridal chamber had to be beautiful. One doesn't honeymoon just anywhere, and it had to be stocked with provisions since the bride and groom were going to remain inside for seven days. Are you guys tracking with me on this one? He's gonna say, I'll I'll return for you, Uh, and then when he goes and he begins to prepare this place, um, once they're married, they stay inside for seven days. This um, project would take the better part of a year ordinarily, and the father of the groom would be the judge of when it was finished. We can see the logic there. Obviously, if we're up to the young man, he'd throw up some kind of modest structure and go get the girl. But the father of the groom, who had been through this previously and was less excited, He would be the final judge on when the chamber was ready and when the young man would go and get his bride. Now, the bride, on her part of the deal, was obligated to do a lot of waiting. She would take time to be ready for when her bridegroom came. Custom provided that she had to have an oil lamp ready in case he came late at night in the darkness because she had to be ready to travel at a moment's notice. During this long period of waiting, she was referred to as consecrated, set apart, bought with a price. She was truly a lady in waiting, but there was no doubt that her groom would return. Meanwhile, the bridegroom would be building and decorating with all that he had. His father would inspect the chamber from time to time to see if it was ready. 
If we came along the road at this point and saw the young man working on his bridal chamber, we might say, when's the big day? And the bridegroom would answer, only my father knows. John 14, verse three. Only the father knows. And Matthew, uh, Matthew 24, 36, I should say. Now over at the bride's house, uh, they had better be ready to be sure the bride would be surprised since the groom would try to come at midnight while she was sleeping, but the oil lamps were ready and the bride had her veil. And while she might be sleeping in her wedding dress, she was definitely, uh, she was definitely surprised. It's a wonder she would sleep at all as the year went on. Now, there were rules to observe in consideration of a woman's feelings. The groom couldn't just rush in on her. Actually, as the excited party of the young man would get closer to her house, they were obligated to give out a warning. Somebody in the wedding party would shout, make a noise. And when the bride heard the shout, she knew her young man would be there momentarily. She had only time to light her lamps, grab her honeymoon clothes, and go. Her sisters and bridemaids who wanted to attend also had to have their lamps trimmed and ready, of course. No one would try to walk through ancient Israel with its rocky terrain in the dark of night without carrying a lamp. Anybody that's been there knows that. When the wedding party reached the house of the groom's father, and this is the part I want you to catch, this is the last paragraph. When the wedding party reached the house of the groom's father, the bride and the groom would go into their chamber, shut the door. No one else would enter. The groom's father, meanwhile, would have assembled wedding guests, his friends, and they would be ready to celebrate the new marriage. Since the wedding was actually going to take seven days until the appearance of the bride and groom came out of their chambers, it was hard to plan for. Occasionally, um, the host would run out of wine, as we can imagine the Lord himself graced a wedding at Canaan with his presence and replenished the wine for the celebrants, and that was the first miracle. And remember, John, there's seven miracles. Remember the first one? John 2, he turned the water into wine. But the celebrating wouldn't start right away. First, the marriage has to be consummated. The Jews were a most law-abiding people, and the law provided that the bride and groom become one before the marriage was recognized. Thus, the friend of the bridegroom, best man if you would, the individual we might refer to as the best man would stand near the door of the bridal chamber waiting to hear the bridegroom's voice. When the marriage was consummated, the bridegroom would tell his friend through the door, and the friend would then go to the wedding guest and announce the good news. The celebration would then begin and it would continue for an entire week. But during that week, they're still in the bridal chamber and they don't come out until the seven days. At the end of the week, the bride and the groom would make their long-awaited appearance to the cheers of the crowd. Uh, there would be a joyous meal, a marriage supper, which we might uh, refer to as the wedding reception. I could get sidetracked here and show you that the wedding banquet of the feast doesn't take place until after the church returns here. It doesn't take place in heaven. The wedding does, but not the wedding feast. Do you be a brilliant and do your homework on that one. At this point, the bride would have disregarded her veil since she was now a married woman and all would see exactly who was... Um, the bridegroom had chosen the new couple and the guest would enjoy a magnificent feast to conclude the entire um, matrimonial week. After the marriage supper, the bride and groom would depart, not remaining any longer at the house of the groom's father. They would go instead to their own house, which had been prepared by the bridegroom. The bride of Christ will spend seven years in heaven at the home of the groom's father, and then he shall return 
with our bridegroom to occupy the kingdom he has prepared us. As the bride and the groom would travel back through the village, it would be appreciated by all onlookers just who the couple was and where their permanent home would be. And that was a complete Jewish wedding in Jesus' time, in all of its glory. Readers of the gospel can easily see the beautiful analogies between the complex procedures and the manner in which the Lord himself called out his chosen bride. Let's go back and now reread our first three verses. And you're thinking, Dwight, if you got that far in three verses, you don't stand a chance for the rest of this study. Let's go back and read, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And my father saw so many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Sunday study, again, I'm throwing out a teaser here, is talking about the very place that he's prepared for you. And I'm talking about the New Jerusalem. But we'll get into that on Sunday. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and where I go you know the way. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And here is one of um, the famous I am statements. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him, and you have seen him. Let's read down through verse 15. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and then we'll be satisfied. But Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you have not known me, Philip? How he he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else simply believe because of the works that I've done. You've seen it. You've seen the dead raised. You've seen the the lame walk. You've seen the blind see. You've seen the death hear. You've seen all of it. Believe just because of the works. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I have to stop and interject here James 5, because James says, you pray for things, and you're not getting them. And the reason you're not getting them is you're praying to put them upon your own wants and needs and lusts. It's not what the Lord wants for you, it's what you want for yourself. And the extreme in that is, of course, positive confession, the prosperity doctrine. Now, what loving father is gonna give a kid anything he wants? Nice, he'd be a spoiled brat. So he knows when to say yes and he knows when to say no. If you love me, keep my commandments. All right. If you're taking notes, in John 14, we have three promises. The first one, the promise of heaven. I go to prepare a place for you. The second one, the promise of his return, that he's gonna come and catch his church up into the air into their places as prepared for them. Then the Lord, according to Isaiah, is gonna come from his place and judge the inhabitants of the earth. The third promise, if you're taking notes, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what we have in John 14. Three promises. The promise of heaven, the promise of his return, the promise of the Holy Spirit. So now in verse 16, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. Um, 
and that he may abide with you forever. He's talking, of course, about the Holy Spirit. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. At this point in time, the disciples have not received the gift. So he's with, um, before a person is born again, let's say you're praying for somebody right now. What the Holy Spirit is doing is working overtime trying to create divine appointments that the Holy Spirit will come alongside a person and um, create circumstances that would open them up to the gospel, the Holy Spirit with them. So let's say that person says, I I believe that what you're saying is true. Well, you need to repent, and, and if you repent and you're baptized, then Acts 2 says you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when we read here, at this time, the Spirit is with them, but he's going to be eventually in Acts 2 in them. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I love him, and and manifests myself to him. Now at this point in 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anybody loves me, he will keep my word. This is why what we're doing tonight is so vital. How can you keep something that you don't know? You have to have, you have to be saturated in the scriptures. And the more saturated you are in the scriptures, um, uh, we won't just be hearers of the word, but, it, but doers. And my father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Again, if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 3 says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? and that God dwells in you? He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear are are mine, but my Father who sent me. These things I have spoken unto you while being uh, present with you. But the helper, here's another name for it, it's actually the paraclete, uh, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all things that I say to you. It amazes me sometimes, and everybody here that's born again has had this experience. You get yakking with somebody. Just start talking. And let's just say, um, if it's a person who knows the Lord, they need ministering to or comforting or whatever. Or maybe it's a non-believer. And if you can... I like to think of um, the woman at the well as the best example on how to witness to a person. Because there's animosity at first. I'm a Jew, you're a Samaritan. And what does the Lord do? He tactfully draws her to a place of asking questions. And when it gets to that point, and questions are start being answered, well, you better have some information biblically down inside of here. And what the Holy Spirit will do is bring out what the word of God has to say about that particular question. And um, that's exactly what the Lord is saying here. Uh, I will bring to your remembrance. Oh yeah, I know, the word, I know what the word says about this. And hopefully they ask more questions. Peace I leave with you. I know Eric picked out this song tonight because of this verse. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. So don't let your heart be troubled and neither let it be afraid. 
Let's just make it personal here. Let's say you came to the Wednesday night Bible study and you're troubled. Let's say you came and you didn't have any peace. And um, we get exhorted (laughs) through the scriptures that the Lord says, don't let it be. I've come to to, uh, leave you peace. My peace. You know, we read the stories about the Lord being in the middle of the sea and the the guys are freaking out and saying, Lord, help us, we're gonna die. And the Lord is so worried and concerned about the whole thing, he's uh, sleeping on the front of the boat. (laughs) And he gets up and rebukes the storm, says, peace, be still. And there's this great calm. And instead of looking at the disciples and say, boy, it's a good thing you called them. You guys would have been goners for sure. No. He says, where's your faith? I, didn't I say we're going to get on this side of the, the river of the Sea of Galilee and we're going on the other side? Do you think there's any power in the universe that's going to stop that from happening? So he challenged He chides them. Where's your faith? I said we're going from here over to there. And what does the Lord say about you? That you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Oh, by the way, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Yes, there's going to be storms. Yes, there's going to be trials. Yes, there's going to be troubles. But the Lord says he will deliver them and you out of all of them. Add to that, he says, as a matter of fact, I'll even turn around and work it for the good. So that, if you know that, that's what brings about that peace. So let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to my father, for my father is greater than I. And now, and this is what I like, this this made my day as I read this verse. I have told you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you may believe. Does that sound familiar for anybody that was here on Sunday? Go back to chapter 13, and the Lord is talking about Judas about to betray him. And we read, if you want to be happy, uh, be a servant in verse 17. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And the challenge was you can be a happy person or a sad person. And then he says, but I do not speak concerning all of you, for I know who I have chosen, but that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He who eats his bread with me has lifted up a heel against me. And remember, we went to Psalm 41.9, and I said this is a double prophecy, clearly about Judas, but not from David's perspective. And we, we told the whole story about Ahipothel, David's best friend. But then it says what? Verse 19, I tell you this before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. And now, now the Lord is um, saying exactly the same thing word for word. And now I've come and told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is come and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father as the Father gave me commandment, so do I. Arise, let us go from here. What a great way to end a Bible study. Let's arise. We will pray, and we will go from here. Lord, as we look at John chapter 14, this wonderful promise, and Lord, forgive us for getting so entangled up with the cares of this world. We thank you for your word that points us once again to true north and where our priorities should lie. Thank you for the promise that we look into on Sunday that you're actually going to make a special place individually for each of us and that you've been doing for the last 2,000 years and that your promise is to come again so that we can rule and reign with you in your kingdom. 
I pray ahead of time for Sunday, Lord, as we not only talk about that place, that new Jerusalem, but what will our responsibilities be? What will we do on a day-by-day basis according to your word? I thank you that you've given us a foundation for it on Wednesday night, and I pray, Lord, for Sunday morning that you give us more clarity on just what you're referring to here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Jerusalem, but what will our responsibilities be? What will we do on a day-by-day basis according to your word? I thank you that you've given us a foundation for it on Wednesday night, and I pray, Lord, for Sunday morning that you give us more clarity on just what you're referring to here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.